Hello and welcome to the Film Jerk Podcast. I'm your host, Edward Havens. Today we are going to be continuing our mini-series on one of the bigger independent distributors of the mid-1980s, Empire Pictures. Our previous episode took a look at the formation of the company and its theatrical releases between 1984 and 1987. Today we'll examine their films from 1988 and 1989, all of their direct-to-video releases, a summation of how the company would end up closing, and what happened to Charles Band after the failure of Empire Pictures. One thing Charles Band did best with Empire Picture films in the 1980s was giving them unique titles that would never get confused with any other film. And no film in the Empire Pictures library would have as unique a title as David DeCatau's Sorority Babes in the slime ball, Bolarama. And like many an Empire Pictures movie with such a unique title, the title of the movie is the most interesting part of the movie. After being caught spying on a sorority pledge ritual, three uncouth college boys must help the sorority pledges steal a trophy from a local bowling alley. But when they do, they accidentally unleash a devilish imp who makes their lives a living hell. Featuring no less than three of the biggest scream queens of the 1980s, Michelle Bauer, Lynnae Quigley, and Brink Stevens, the $90,000 film is about as good as you would expect a film called Sorority Babes and the Slime Ball Bowl Aroma to be. But it's got its fans. The film would open in four theaters in Los Angeles on January 29, 1988, as part of a double feature with another Empire picture. That film, Gorman Bachar's Galactic Gigolo, featured many of the same actors and crew as his 1987 Empire Pictures film, Psychos in Love, which we spoke about on our previous episode. Billed as an extraterrestrial sexual comedy, the film follows an alien who wins a game show, with the grand prize being a trip to Earth to have sex with as many Earth women as he can while being followed by a reporter who is writing a biography on his adventures. You can only imagine the shock filmmakers unfamiliar with the people associated with the film. When the poster for the film shows a thin, semi-cool looking punk with silver hair riding around in some pimped out galactic cruiser and are instead given an overweight balding troglodyte who looks like he belongs as a background player in Saturday Night Fever being denied entry into the disco because he just does not represent the beautiful clientele that drives people to go to that disco instead of one down the road. After making his feature directing debut in 1986 with the Mike Norris starring action film Born American, Finnish director Rennie Harlan would make his American theatrical debut with the horror film Prison. is trapped in the dark. Something grab hold of me. Some things just won't stay buried. It's something evil. I summon the creature of darkness. It's something inhuman. What's happening in there? And it's waiting for someone. Come forth and show yourself. 
to open the door. With a budget of six million dollars, Prison would be Empire's most expensive film to date, and would also have its best cast to date, including Lane Smith, Tom Tiny Lister, Hal Landon Jr., Chelsea Field, stunt coordinator and future Jason Voorhees actor Kane Hodder, and Viggo Mortensen in his first starring role. Producer Erwin Yablons, who had helped to bring John Carpenter's Halloween to screens, was looking for another novel idea for a horror film when he realized there had never been a horror film set in a prison. After mapping out a basic storyline in which a prisoner is executed via electric chair for a murder he did not commit and returns from the afterlife after 30 years to exact his revenge on the officer who stood by the prisoner at the execution, who is now the warden of the prison. Yablons would hire C. Courtney Joyner, who had written Jeff Burr's 1987 horror film The Offspring, to write the screenplay. The movie would begin production at a decommissioned state prison in Rollins, Wyoming, where Butch Cassidy once served time, in May of 1987. The warden and some prisoners from the new state prison, built five years earlier a few miles down the road, would be used as extras. Empire would release the film in 65 theaters in and around New York City on March 4, 1988, but the film would have stiff competition from nearly a dozen other films opening in New York the same weekend, including a new Richard Pryor film and the recently Oscar-nominated Babette's Feast, as well as the continued success of Good Morning Vietnam, Moonstruck, Broadcast News, Wall Street, Hope and Glory, The Last Emperor, Hairspray, and Frantic and the film would barely gross $125,000. The film would continue to play in theaters for another two months, finishing with $345,000 in ticket sales. Prison might have been the first horror film to be set in a prison, but ironically, three other prison-set horror movies would open in theaters within the next year and a half, including Robert Kirk's Destroyer, which would open a mere four weeks after prison, and Wes Craven's Shocker, which would open in October of 1989. The Monday after prison opened in theaters, Rennie Harlan would begin production on his next film, A Nightmare on Elm Street 4, The Dream Master, which would become the highest grossing film in the original 1984 to 1994 seven film series when it was released in August 1988. By March 1988, however, Empire was in big trouble. Their biggest source of income, foreign pre-sales, was drying up because there were just too many previous Empire pictures that didn't connect with their audiences. Selling off video rights to their theatrical releases to rival Vestron Video 
for a quick infusion of cash didn't help as much as hoped. And the staple home of B-movies, neighborhood drive-ins, were disappearing at an alarming rate. Between 1984, when Empire was starting up, and 1988, more than half of the 2,200 drive-in movie theaters in America closed, robbing companies like Empire, Canon, Troma, and other independent distributors a good number of bookings for their films. Dollar houses, another major regular source of income for indie distributors, were disappearing as well as VCRs were becoming more commonplace in homes. One of the payments on the long-term debt borrowed from Credit Lyonnais was coming due, and Band did not have the money to pay it. Empire would default on its loan, and the bank would take over the company in May of 1988. The bulk of Empire's assets would be purchased by Epic Entertainment, which would eventually have its own bankruptcy issues, and now the bulk of the Empire Pictures Library is owned by MGM, who also owns the library for many other 80 distributors we'll be talking about in the future, including Atlantic Releasing, Canon Films, Cinecom, Filmways, Island Pictures and the Samuel Golden Company, as well as several companies we've already done shows on, including Hemdale, MCEG, and Orion Pictures. Charles Band wasn't down for long, though. By early 1989, he'd be back in business with Full Moon Pictures, which concentrated on direct-to-video productions instead of theatrical releases. You might know Full Moon from their Puppet Master franchise, or their Subspecies franchise, or their Trancers franchise, or their Evil Bong franchise. As of January 2021, Full Moon Pictures is still in business, still making low-budget, direct-to-video movies. But Empire would still be in business for a little while longer, though. Their first release after the departure of Charles Band and the takeover of Credit Lyonnais was the Anita Rosenberg comedy Assault of the Killer Bimbos. And if there was ever any doubt that this was an Empire Pictures film, all one had to do was look at the film's writer, Ted Nicolau, and its producer, David DeCatau. The film tells a story about two go-go dancers who go on the run after they are framed for the murder of their boss. Ironically, even though it perfectly fits this film, Assault of the Killer Bimbos was made under a different title and was given this title when another movie by a regular Empire director, Gorman Bichard, was deemed to be unreleasable by Charles Band before he left the company. That film would get reworked by those who took over the company, but would be sold off to a small independent video company called Unicorn Video, who would release it on VHS in late 1989 under the title Cemetery High. We'll talk about that film in a few moments. Director Gorman Bichard has disowned that movie since it wasn't his version of the movie that was released. But the movie we are talking about, the one released with the title Assault of the Killer Bimbos, would get a 15-screen theatrical release in Los Angeles on May 6, 1988. At the start of the end credits, we are warned of a sequel called Bimbo Barbecue, which would be coming soon. And Band had given the green light to Bimbo Barbecue before he left, but no sequel would ever come to pass. It's understandable why Credit Lyonnais would allow the release of Joe Tonatori's Grotesque into theaters. The film did star Linda Blair and Donna Wilkes, 
two actors who had their own fan base who would, from time to time, head to theaters to see one of their exploitation movies. Then there was Tab Hunter, the one-time 50s teen heartthrob, who had gotten a new lease on his career in the 80s thanks to the likes of John Waters and Paul Bartell. And there was future B-movie legend Robert Zadar, who had just been featured in William Lustig's Maniac Cop. Maybe the film would have had a chance in the driving circuit, but this story about a gang of crazed punks who find themselves being pursued by a murderous creature after they slaughter a family in their vacation home in the woods didn't catch on in the few locations it would open at on September 9th. If you're a fan of the Evil Dead series, or Sam Raimi films in general, you may recognize the name of the co-writer and director of Intruder, Scott Spiegel. He'd play the fake Shemp in a number of Raimi movies, and he'd co-write Evil Dead 2, Dead by Dawn. In 1988, he would team with a young Hollywood up-and-comer named Lawrence Bender. Yes, that Lawrence Bender, who produced every Quentin Tarantino movie from Reservoir Dogs to Inglorious Bastards. To write this horror film, based on a short film Spiegel and Raimi had made in their teen years, about an overnight stock crew of a supermarket who are being stalked by a mysterious maniac. You may recognize some of the actors in the film, including Bruce Campbell, Sam Raimi, Ted Raimi, and Spiegel himself. The film also features Renee Estevez, daughter of Martin Sheen and sister of Emilio Estevez and Charlie Sheen, future Igby Goes Down director Burr Steers, and FX wizard Greg Nicotero. Toby Hooper was briefly attached to direct, but that might have been a more hopeful thinking thing on the part of the producers. When Spiegel would start to make the $130,000 movie in March of 1988, they were able to use a real grocery store in suburban Los Angeles to shoot the film overnight when the store was closed, which would add a funny continuity error throughout the film in that the whole movie is supposed to take place over a single evening but several of the magazine at the checkout stands change covers as the movie progresses. In addition to the inclusion of many of Raimi's friends in the production, Intruder is also the very first project Greg Nicotero would make with his new partners Robert Kurtzman and Howard Berger with their KNB effects group, which would go on to become one of the preeminent makeup effects houses in the world. The film would get a brief theatrical run, in a few secondary markets on January 13, 1989, but it would leave theaters after only one week. So, at, at this point, Empire Pictures as a living, breathing movie distribution company was over with, but there were still several films that were in the middle of post-production or fully completed that were awaiting release. Richard Governor was the name Richard McCarthy used for his directing credit on Ghost Town. Because he was not a member of the Directors Guild of America, and the film was not a union production, McCarthy could not opt to use the Alan Smithy pseudonym. Apparently, McCarthy lost control of the production and was removed from the film in the final days of its four-week shoot in Tucson during September and October 1987. Regular Empire cinematographer Mac Alberg would complete the production while continuing with his lighting of the film. Frank Luz stars as a deputy officer who tracks the case of a missing girl 
to an old west ghost town, only to discover the abandoned town is haunted by the spirit of a long-dead outlaw and his gang, who are also holding the deceased former citizens of the town hostage. Knight Rider co-star Catherine Hickland and Bruce Glover from Diamonds Are Forever and Chinatown co-star. This would be one of several Empire films Roger Corman's New World Pictures would pick up for distribution from a bankruptcy sale held by Credit Lyonnais to get back some of the money they were owed. The film would have its world premiere on March 1, 1988 as part of the American film market, but would not open commercially until November 11th when it would open on 13 screens in Los Angeles and gross but $10,478 in its first three days. New World would try the film in a few more smaller markets in early 1989, but the film would end its short theatrical life with only $75,000 in the coffers. Boris Roberts' Buy and Sell, that's C-E-L-L, is unusual for an Empire movie in that it has no supernatural, fantasy, horror, or sci-fi elements in it. It's a straight-up modern-day comedy, featuring a wealth of actors you've actually heard of. Robert Carradine stars as a stock trader who is framed by his boss when the SEC starts investigating their company. In jail, he helps one of the inmates successfully invest his money, which leads to more opportunities to help other inmates, and soon he finds himself at the head of his own investment corporation while still behind bars. The cast includes Malcolm McDowell as the sleazy boss who sets Carradine up, and Randall Tex Cobb, Michael Winslow from the Police Academy series, Ben Vereen, Rowdy Roddy Piper, Tony Plana, and Fred Tavolina also star. Yeah, I haven't thought about Fred Tavolina in 30 years either. Although it takes place in America, Buy and Sell was yet another movie where it was cheaper for Band to fly all of the cast and crew to the Empire production space in Italy and make the film there. Empire would have a full advertising campaign prepared for the film in anticipation of a late summer 1988 release. New World would also pick up the film in that same bankruptcy sale and would open the film in 12 theaters in Los Angeles on January 27, 1989, using the original Empire title art for the newspaper advertising, complete with the Empire Pictures logo on the bottom right-hand corner of the ad. The film would be gone from all 12 theaters the following Friday, with no further theatrical playdates before its late April VHS debut. Stuart Gordon, having missed his chance to direct a studio feature when he had to leave Honey, I Shrunk the Kids due to an illness, would return to Empire Pictures to make his fourth film, the sci-fi action film Robot Jocks. Fifty years after a nuclear war has taken out most of humanity, the two surviving nations, the America-like market and the Russian-like confederation, have opted to use giant robots piloted by pilots called robot jocks to fight over the remaining disputed global territories. Inspired by the Transformers toy line, Gordon teamed up with science fiction author Joe Halderman, whom he had gotten to know when the director was hired to direct a TV miniseries based on the author's best-known work, The Forever War, to work on robot jocks. Gordon's pitch to Charles Band excited the producer, 
But Gordon's estimated budget of $7 million was worrisome, as it would have become the most expensive Empire production to date. Band would give his most treasured director some money to create test footage, with Band and Empire's in-house effects wizard David Allen showing the possibilities of what the footage could look like. The footage so impressed Band and potential investors that they were able to secure full financing for the movie based off that one sequence, which would become the final film's opening scene. Gary Graham, who would become famous for his role in the 1989 TV adaptation of Alien Nation, would star as the market's top robot jock. And What's Happening Now star Anne-Marie Johnson and Paul Koslow would be featured as a second-generation robot jock and the top confederation robot jock, respectively. Frequent Gordon collaborators Jeffrey Combs and Carolyn Purdy Gordon are featured in small roles, and Gordon himself would give himself a cameo as a bartender, the first time he would appear on screen in one of his movies. The four-month production would begin shooting in Rome in January 1987, but the two principals in the creation of the film would regularly clash over the tone and direction of the movie. Holderman wanted a realistic science fiction film about soldiers, having been a combat engineer himself in Vietnam, while Gordon wanted a big live-action cartoon full of easily recognizable characters and story arcs. Essentially, one man wanted a film for adults that kids could also enjoy, the other man a kid's film that adults could also enjoy. Once principal photography was completed in Italy, David Allen and his team headed out to the El Mirage lake bed outside San Bernardino to film the complex effects shots. In 1987, Band had slotted the film for a spring 1989 release, but of course the March 1988 bankruptcy would put that release into jeopardy. Credit Leonet, seeing the potential of the film, would continue to fund the post-production of the movie, and Columbia Pictures would acquire the film in late 1989. Columbia would send the film out into 333 theaters through their Triumph Films label on November 21, 1990, the day before Thanksgiving, which is traditionally one of the busiest weeks at movie theaters. And it would be one of the busiest weekends of 1990, with the release of Three Men and the Little Lady and Predator 2, the wide expansion of Dances with Wolves, and the continued dominance of Home Alone, but robot jocks would not benefit from the major uptick in theater attendance, grossing just $464,000. Five weeks later, the film would be completely out of theaters with a final gross of $1.27 million. Watching the film today, you can't help but notice some similarities between robot jocks and the late 1990s anime show Neon Genesis, as well as Guillermo del Toro's Pacific Rim. As I mentioned before, there were a number of films made by Empire that would bypass theaters and be released directly to video, either through their own video label or through other companies Empire would make deals with when they needed a quick influx of cash. Swordkill, one of the very first films Empire would make, would be released on home video in March 1986 under the title Ghost Warrior. Hiroshi Fujioka would star as Yoshimitsu, a samurai who has been frozen in ice for 400 years. 
His body is shipped to Los Angeles to a secret agency, where they bring him back to life. Confused and scared of the modern world, Yoshimitsu goes on a murderous rampage, with one of the female scientists from the agency and a local reporter attempting to help him before it's too late. Valet Girls was another softcore sex comedy from the king of 80s softcore sex comedies, Rafal Zielinski. A young girl who aspires to a singing career gets herself and her best friend a job as valet parking girls at a Malibu party in order to meet the people who can help them achieve their dreams. Released in January 1987 on video cassette, I specifically like the title used for the Spanish language release, Un Parking Muy Especial. In the early to mid-80s, there was a short-lived trend of creating a horror movie around clips of other horror movies. In 1982, John Landis would create Coming Soon, an hour-long documentary that used clips from trailers for 50 Universal Studios horror films from 1923 to 1964, including Frankenstein, Dracula, and for some reason Psycho, which was actually released by Paramount in 1960. Universal didn't acquire Psycho, which was produced by Alfred Hitchcock independent of any studio, until they bought Hitchcock's company in 1964. In 1984, Universal would make a second horror clips movie entitled Terror in the Isles, which was 84 minutes of climaxes from a wide variety of Hollywood movies and not just Universal movies. Empire Pictures would make their own horror clips movie called Zombiethon. The premise would feature a woman on the run from zombies who hides in a movie theater, the El Rey Theater in Los Angeles where a compilation of trailers and previews from films having to do with zombies is being shown. Sure, there's clips from Fulci's Zombie and the Bela Lugosi White Zombie movie, but not any of the Romero Dead movies, which may explain why the movie would not get a theatrical release. It would arrive on home video in March of 1987. Beneath the Metropolis is... Necropolis was the poster tagline for this Bruce Hickey movie. A reincarnated satanic witch from 1600's New Amsterdam returns to her old yet unfamiliar stomping grounds intent on reviving members of her cult by sucking the life force out of people. This low-budget affair was shot in New Jersey and would get a home video release in May 1987. One of the stars of Necropolis, Jennifer Stahl, was also a featured dancer in Dirty Dancing, which would open a few months later, but that's as close as anyone associated with this movie would get to any kind of fame. We've already mentioned Tim Kincaid's Mutant Hunt on the previous episode. Kincaid had shot Mutant Hunt concurrently with Breeders. While Breeders would get a theatrical release in May 1986, this cheap sci-fi action film about a cold and vicious genetic scientist who discovers a way to alter harmless human cyborgs into bloodthirsty killing machines would go direct to video in May 1987. You know how at the end of most movies, the end credits start with a listing of the cast and it starts with the header that says cast? 
At the start of the end credits for John Carl Beekler's Cellar Dweller, instead of cast, it says, a good cast is worth repeating. And they're not wrong. Amongst the cast members of this horror fantasy film about a young comic book artist who takes up restarting a series called Cellar Dweller 30 years after its creator murdered his wife and then killed himself are Dynasty's Pamela Bellwood, Empire Pictures regular Jeffrey Combs, Yvonne DiCarlo from The Munsters, the great Vince Edwards, Deborah Ferentino from Earth 2 and NYPD Blue, and head of the class co-star Brian Robbins. The screenplay would be the first produced work by Don Mancini, who would become famous with his second produced screenplay, Child's Play, which would premiere just six weeks after Cellar Dweller was released directly to video on September 20th, 1988. We mentioned Cemetery High, the film originally made with the title Assault of the Killer Bimbos earlier. We mentioned that its writer and director, Gorman Bichard, would disown the movie, saying the version that was released on video in August 1989 was not representative of his vision. I'm not certain the director of this, Galactic Gigolo and Psychos in Love, gets to claim he has any kind of artistic vision to speak of. Like with Psychos in Love and Galactic Gigolo, the film stars Debbie Thibault, Frank Stewart, and Carmine Capobianco. It looks like it's been shot with 16mm short ends, it features characters constantly breaking the fourth wall, and has the same kind of threadbare storyline in order to get you from one outrageous moment to the next. And yes, I was using air quotes with my hands when I said outrageous moment. Four high school graduates, all who've been beaten and or raped by men during their teen years, decide they are going to become vigilantes and kill all of the, as they put it in the movie, scum-sucking assholes. This film is so bad, it would not only never play in movie theaters, the company that would pick it up for home video distribution was Unicorn Video, who were best known for their poorly created tapes of public domain titles that you would see on sale for three bucks in the checkout line of your local supermarket. You might have seen tapes of Cemetery High there when it was released in August 1989. One movie we would be normally discussing on our next episode about the unmade films of Empire Pictures would be the sequel to the band-produced 1978 film Laser Blast. Robocop co-creator Michael Miner was brought in to help write the screenplay for Laser Blast 2. But while he was working on the script, he and Band decided instead to make the movie an original story independent of the previous film. This time, instead of a teenage boy finding an alien weapon and using it to seek revenge on those who have wronged him, a teenage boy who dreams of being an alien finds an experimental military weapon and uses it to defend himself against those who have wronged him. Totally different movies. After having the opportunity to work as the second unit director on Robocop, Band would install Miner in the director's chair for this film, which would feature Elm Street 3 actor Rodney Eastman, future Twin Peaks co-star Michael Horse, Blade Runner co-star William Sanderson, 
Ghoulies 2 co-star Sasha Jensen, and former SNL star Gary Kroger. CBS Fox Home Video would release this film in August 1989. Another Empire picture that would get picked up by Unicorn Video was Tim Kincaid's The Occultist. But I'm getting ahead of myself here because The Occultist actually had a half-decent premise. A cyborg private eye is hired to protect the president of a small Caribbean island nation who is visiting New York from a group of sadistic sorcerers. That sounds like it could be a good movie, right? But not in the hands of a hack director like Tim Kincaid, it isn't. Rick Giannassi, the future star of Troma's Sergeant Kabuki Man NYPD, plays the cyborg P.I., and Daphne Rubin Vega, the original Mimi in the Broadway musical Rent, makes her on-screen debut in a small role. This would arrive in grocery store bargain bins in late October 1989. The less said about David Decato's Dr. Alien, the better. A poorly made sex comedy about an alien who takes over as the biology teacher at a local college when it accidentally kills a professor stars Judy Landers as the sexy new teacher who is really an alien, and the only thing interesting about the film is that Brad Pitt unsuccessfully auditioned for the lead male role. Lucky for him, he didn't get it. Paramount Home Video would release it in October of 1989. Arthur Allen Seidelman, today is best known as the director of 1970's Hercules in New York, which would feature Arnold Schwarzenegger in his first movie. In 1986, Seidelman would team with Charles Band and Frank Yablons to make The Caller, a mystery thriller featuring Malcolm McDowell and Madeline Smith. A mysterious man knocks on the door of a forest cabin. His car has broken down, and he needs the owner's assistance. The pair find themselves in an intricate cat-and-mouse game where nothing is what it seems. The film would make its world premiere at the Cannes Film Festival in May 1987, but despite releasing nearly two dozen other films between then and the collapse of the company in the spring of 1988, The Caller would not get released in any form until it came out on video through Trans World Entertainment in late December 1989. Danny Bilson and Paul DeMeo's fourth full-length screenplay for Empire after Trancers, Zone Troopers, and Eliminators, would be the sci-fi action-adventure film Arena. A human becomes an unlikely rising star in the biggest fighting tournament in a galaxy that's dominated by alien species. Arena would be one of several movies Band would shoot at his studio in Rome, reusing sets from the just-completed Stuart Gordon film Robot Jocks. And why not? The sets were already built, and it costs money to both tear down old ones and build new ones. Roger Corman did that all the time in the 50s and 60s. He'd shoot the Little Shop of Horrors in two days on the sets he had used for a bucket of blood, and use the sets from The Raven and the two extra days he had with Boris Karloff in order to build the start of a movie that would eventually become The Terror. RCA Columbia Home Video would release Arena, in September of 1991. Jay Kamen's Transformations would shoot at the same time as Arena 
and would also use a number of the same robot jock sets. Rex Smith, the one-time host of TV pop music show Solid Gold, stars as a space traveler who becomes possessed by a monster when he has sex with a succubus and crash lands on a prison planet where Patrick McNee is a preacher in a space church. And the movie is so damn ridiculous on every level that although it was made in the summer of 1987, the damn thing would not get seen until October of 1991 when New World Pictures would put it out on video. We already mentioned Rafal Zelinsky's Spellcaster in a previous episode, the first movie to be shot at Charles Band's then newly acquired Castello de Giove in the summer of 1986. Spellcaster follows orphaned siblings who are chosen to participate in a treasure hunt alongside other players for a prize of $1 million, which has been hidden in an Italian castle owned by the mysterious Diablo. The contest is being recorded for a music video channel and sponsored by the recording company of pop star Cassandra Castle, who is accompanying the contestants through the hunt alongside a video channel VJ named Rex. Gail O'Grady, later of NYPD Blue fame, and Harold Pruitt play the siblings, music star Adam Ant as the owner of the castle, and Richard Blade, the popular DJ from Los Angeles' K-Rock music station, plays the VJ. Although the film was completed by the end of 1987, it would not get released until May of 1992 when Columbia TriStar Home Entertainment would release it on VHS. But even with that five-and-a-half-year gap, it's not even close to being the Empire film with the biggest gap between production and release. The last Empire picture that would officially complete before being seized by Credit Lyonnais was David Schmoller's Catacombs. Catacombs tells the story of a group of monks in the 17th century who capture and entomb a demon that has possessed one of their own deep underneath their order. Three centuries later, a schoolteacher visiting the monastery for research purposes accidentally unleashes that evil into the modern world. Timothy Van Patten plays one of the modern priests who tries to help make things right again. Filmed over the course of three weeks in Italy, Schmoller would churn in his final cut for the film to Empire Pictures just days before Credit Lyonnais took over the company. Schmoller brought what was at the time the only completed print of the film to the 1988 Cannes film market, only to find it seized by the bank during the festival. The film would be acquired by Transworld Entertainment in late 1988, but they would also go out of business before Catacombs could get released. The film would finally come out on VHS through Columbia TriStar Home Video under the title The Curse for The Ultimate Sacrifice in March of 1993, despite not only having nothing to do with any of the Curse movies, but being made before either The Curse 2 or The Curse 3. But the film that holds the dubious honor of being the Empire Pictures film to sit on the proverbial shelf the longest before getting any kind of release is Charles Band's Pulse Pounders, an anthology film unlike any anthology film before 
as one of the sequences featured in this anthology film would be a sequel to a previous anthology film. In 1987, when things were still looking good for Band and his company, he decided the best chance for a hit film would be to create something that could bring different fans of different Empire films together. So Band had the writing team of Danny Bilson and Paul DeMeo write Trancers 2, The Return of Jack Death, while he brought Michael Casalt, a staff writer for Max Headroom, in to write a sequel to Dungeon Master, to be called A Sorcerer's Nightmare. Meanwhile, he would have Dennis Paoli, Stuart Gordon's creative partner who had co-written the screenplays for Reanimator and From Beyond, come in to adapt another Lovecraft story, The Evil Clergyman. Band would first shoot The Evil Clergyman in Los Angeles in the winter of 1987, while Gordon was in Italy making robot jocks. Jeffrey Combs and Barbara Crampton, the stars of Reanimator and From Beyond, would star alongside their Reanimator co-star David Gale and the legendary David Warner in a twisted tale of a love story between a preacher and a beautiful woman and the lengths that they are willing to go to to prove their love for each other, even after one of them kills themselves. In June of 1987, Band would begin production on the two sequels, starting first with Dungeon Master 2, which would bring back Richard Mull and Jeffrey Byron from the first movie, and then the Trancers follow-up, which would return Tim Thomerson, Helen Hunt, and Art Lafleur a few months after that. The films were edited, scored, and made ready for release. But a funny thing happened on the way to that release. First, of course, was the bankruptcy of Empire Pictures, which resulted in Charles Band leaving the company. Worse than that, though, was that sometime after the takeover of the company by Credit Lyonnais, the original 35mm negatives for the three episodes were lost. And for a nearly a quarter century, fans would wish that someday they'd be given the chance to see the film. And then something magical happened. Well, sort of magical. In 2011, a VHS tape that held a work print copy of Pulse Pounders was discovered. Band worked out a deal with the copyright owners to do a digital restoration of the print and be allowed to release what they would be able to make of it. Richard Band, Charles's brother, who had also scored Reanimator, would create a new 80s-style score for the movies. And in August of 2012, the 30-minute Evil Clergyman movie would make its belated world premiere at Flashback Weekend in Chicago. The following August, the Trancers short film with a new title, City of Lost Angels, would make its premiere at the same festival. But as of January 2021, the Dungeon Master portion still has not seen the light of day, although Band still has plans to finish it and release it on the Full Moon streaming website, both individually and together with the other two segments as the actual intended Pulse Pounders movie. And that, my friends, is the end of part two of this Empire Pictures miniseries. Next week, we'll talk about the films Empire Pictures didn't get to make, including a proposed third teaming of director Stuart Gordon 
and actors Barbara Crampton and Jeffrey Combs. I hope you'll join us. The Film Jerk Podcast has been written, produced, narrated, and edited by Edward Havens for Idiosyncratic Entertainment. Thank you again. Good night. Thank you.